Part 5 of A Brief History of the Order of Dionysus and Paul by Alan Armstrong. On Saturday the 21st of September, 1991, Bishop Marcus was installed as the new Archbishop of the Holy Celtic Church. However, before describing the Order of Dionysus and Paul in any detail, it is important to look at its emergence over the course of the last 70 years. The Order had clearly emerged into the world against great odds, and it may seem strange that it emerged as it did, a fusion of two spiritual forces that in many respects appear to have failed, but arguably it's only out of these two spheres that it could have emerged. The spiritual forces I refer to are the esoteric and exoteric aspects of religion. The exoteric needs no introduction, except to say it is well known in the form of the world's leading Christian churches, such as, for example, the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England. The esoteric aspects have many fantastic forms, but when all is said and done, they derive either from the monastic elements of the Church, which have been in decline for decades, or in the Rosicrucian and Hermetic streams of thought that populate the shadowlands of our society. That the order emerged is one thing, which has already been explained in part and requires little further explanation. But why it emerged is another, and that does require explanation. It could be said quite fairly that the Church in its decline is suffering the consequences of its errors the most significant being a loss of direction, by which I mean that the purpose of religion is not simply the worship of God through the agency of an elite priesthood, but to assist the growth and development of the soul through prayer, meditation, and the development of a spiritual habitus, which is, after all, how the Church began. When the Church first emerged, it had few material resources, yet it had sufficient strength to expand in spite of the might of the Roman Empire, and more importantly, against a universal pagan mindset. That it did so is a matter of history. Indeed, the centuries before Constantine witnessed a progressive development of a strong, patient and robust church that was in no hurry to go anywhere or to do anything except practice a virtuous life. Yet over the course of the centuries, the church seems to have lost both its strength and its sense of purpose, which is perhaps understandable, but what is difficult to comprehend is that it refuses to engage with its errors, focusing instead upon the demands of popular culture, form without substance, something that would never have happened in the primitive church, to which I draw your attention to the Gnostic conflict, past and present, as an example. Change is inevitable, but it was only after the Second World War that the desire for change quickened sufficiently to overcome the gravitational mass of social inertia. The order has a particular form that emerged and has survived. The reason why constitutes the very basis of tradition, maintaining connectivity with its roots, not just with its essence, but also with its form and its energies. On these terms, the word evolution itself presupposes tradition. The Order established and maintained its connection with the Church and its rituals because in its essence the Church is strong, even when its energies are misdirected and its form weak. It is a fair criticism 
that as the church evolved over the centuries, it lost touch with its essence by paying too much attention to the outward form of worship in which its energies are dissipated and thereby weakened. In short, it has focused upon the outward show of worship but omitted to cultivate prayer, meditation and a spiritual habitus in the souls of the faithful. Thus, in describing the order of Dionysus and Paul, it must be emphasised that its primary purpose has ever been to promote the growth and development of the soul through prayer, meditation and the cultivation of a spiritual habitus. Everything else is secondary. In essence, it is the same as it was 2,000 years ago, although its energies and forms vary according to the needs of the time and place. Such work, cultivating a new habitus, does not require a great number of members, but they must be true to it, for only by being true to the work does that critical spiritual ferment take place. Membership is more than being initiated into the order. It is, in many ways, a state of being. In times past, some of the members joined, left and rejoined. Others have stayed the course, and one or two have joined and have never been seen again. But none of those who were initiated have been left unchanged. What was and is still expected of a member is to engage in the daily offices, to study the curriculum and to attend order meetings, both for discussion and for worship. It has ever been understood that in following this approach, members will begin to develop a behavioural reflex that is not defined by the instinctive nature of the first Adam, but is determined by the spiritual nature of the second Adam. What this means is to develop a nature that rests upon the principle of empathy and compassion rather than the selfish aspirations of the instinctive nature. This is no easy task, nor is it something that happens quickly. Our behavioural reflex, our habitus, is built into the very fibres of our being and it takes a considerable time to sublimate a reflex that we have cultivated over many years. The word habitus is a Latin translation of the Greek word hexis, used by Aristotle to mean the acquired virtues of temperance, fortitude, justice and prudence, which are the prerequisites for a virtuous life. The term was reintroduced to modern usage by the anthropologist Marcel Mauss, 1872-1950, to mean those aspects of culture that are anchored in the daily practices of individuals and groups, including the learned habits, bodily skills, styles, tastes and other non-discursive knowledge for a specific group. Habitus represents the way group culture and personal history shape the body and the mind and as a consequence shape society. In the 1960s, the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu adapted the word habitus to describe human relationships and why we are like we are. He thought that for most people their habitus was to all intents and purposes permanent. However, the best contemporary definition outside of secular culture is by the late Alan Crider, who discussed it at length in his book The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The life of the order is an expression of the rule, the first part of which states, seek first the kingdom of God. It is to this singular purpose that the order is dedicated. What is actually meant is that we should adapt our way of life, our habitus, by following the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, who taught that the kingdom of God is within you.
In short, the Lord taught that by meditating or reflecting upon our traditional manner of behavior and by comparing it with the standards and examples he set, we are able to modify our reactive patterns of behavior and thereby evolve into a more integrated human being. The second part of the rule states, and I quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength, and that thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Quoted from Luke 10.27 In this statement is outlined the habitus of the second Adam. To love God is not simply to think kindly about an abstract force or entity, but to love life in all its different forms. This means that we should love not only the strong, the vibrant, the healthy, the wealthy, the charming and the beautiful, but that we should also love and respect our elders, protect the vulnerable, heal the sick, feed the hungry, assist the homeless, clothe the naked, cultivate those who are coarse and or ugly, and nurture the young and the ignorant. We should also gather together to worship God with love, not with grand words, which means that as individuals we should engage in spiritualizing our lives through prayer and meditation, that we should do no violence to people or to creatures of the world, that we should covet neither person nor thing, that we should minimize our aspirations for wealth, status, power, authority and control. Furthermore, it means that we should speak the truth or remain silent. These very potent ways of modifying our behavioral reflexes, our habitus, are expressed in the way we organize our lives. Such ways are easy enough when they coincide with our natural inclinations, but they can be difficult when we are confronted with a conflict of interests. Consequently, we are encouraged, as order members, to develop the civic virtues of prudence, fortitude, justice and temperance. These four ancient modes of behaviour determine how we can view and engage with life. The virtue of prudence is concerned with making informed decisions and managing resources wisely. To be able to do this effectively applies to both the individual and the community, as good management of people and resources contributes towards individual well-being and communal harmony and prosperity. It is all-inclusive. The virtue of fortitude, by which is meant courage, is concerned with bearing hardship and discomfort patiently and with humility, especially as life is so unpredictable and full of pitfalls and obstacles. However, it is not simply about bravery, but also about recognising and striving after that which is noble and good, about turning away from all that is base and unworthy. That takes courage. The virtue of temperance is concerned with controlling the excesses of the carnal nature, excesses which take many forms, but in the end they all derive from desire. We must learn to guard against them, setting appropriate limits to the wanderings of the discursive mind. For if our carnal nature is left unchecked, it will fill the imagination with desires that are fanciful, if not foolish. The virtue of justice is concerned with ordering and managing our lives in such a way that we can live in harmony with our fellows, maintaining the principle of dealing in an even-handed manner with all. This may seem to be simple and in many ways obvious. However, the theory is one thing, applying it is another. And so far, the virtues have been described in the context of defining and shaping the individual's role in society.
As such, they are known as the civic virtues, for they facilitate the socialization of the individual and the consequent evolution of civilization. In that process, they are concerned with the development of reason and the moderation of our passionate nature. Thus we learn to control appetites, manage resources and order our lives in harmony with our fellows. Yet there is a great deal more to the virtues than civic development. They are central components of the spiritual potential residing within each one of us. Consider, for instance, the development of prudence. The discursive mind learns the art of reasoning, by which resources are managed wisely and the excesses of the carnal nature are controlled. This leads to the art and discipline of meditation, in which the reasoning powers evolve, learning to engage in pure spiritual thought. In principle, it is the art of managing internal resources, albeit on another level. It is the same with the other virtues. Fortitude, for example, begins with learning to accept hardship and control aggression. However, it also extends into learning how to overcome fear, particularly the very human fear of being alone, of being rejected by the herd, as it were, for standing up for our values as we seek that which is noble, and more pertinently, overcoming the fear of being separated from established comfort zones. With temperance, the soul begins to control appetite and passion, eventually learning how to transcend and sublimate the passionate nature, whereby desire is transformed into empathy and passion is transformed into compassion. Whereas in developing a sense of justice, the soul learns how to order its life according to the law of the land and live in harmony with its fellows. Thus we are led in our prayer life by the Holy Spirit, along an ascending spiral of virtue into a state of stillness and peace that is beyond all other human experience. It is a peace that mankind can neither give nor take away. This is the beginning of contemplation, through which we are gradually assimilated into the spiritual life, and where we begin to accomplish our true function. For the goal of the virtuous life is likeness to the divinity. Cultivation of the virtues is then important, both in the life of the individual and socially. The first part of the rule we've looked at, which is seek first the kingdom of God, as we have looked at the second part, which is the great commandment given by our Lord. The third consists of the Beatitudes, which are given to humanity by the Lord during the Sermon on the Mount, and is as follows. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is about the development of renunciation. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's about the development of our awareness of our separation from God. The third, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's about the development of humility. The fourth, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's about the development and exercise of compassion. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, is about the development of ethical discrimination. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is about the development of non-attachment. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, is about the development of tolerance and right thinking. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 
is about the development of the will. And finally, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. This is simply about the development of courage, a spiritual courage rather than a mortal courage. The fourth part of the rule consists of the Ten Commandments, of which the first three concern our relationship with God and the remaining seven are our behaviour with the family and the broader structures of society. They are as follows. I am the Lord thy God. You shall have no other gods before me. This concerns the recognition of the unity of God. The second is you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, which concerns the respect for the dynamic power of God. The third is to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord thy God, concerning devoting time to the contemplation and consciousness of separation from God. Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days might be long in the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. Here we are learning gratitude and respect for our elders, for those who have cared for us and nurtured us through many years. Thou shalt not kill means overcoming anger through abstaining from inflicting injury and suffering upon others. This is followed by thou shalt not commit adultery, which is concerned with overcoming lust through the practice of continence and chastity. Thou shalt not steal, is concerned with overcoming avarice through respecting other people's property. Let us remember that it is by lust, avarice and anger that the Godhead is hidden. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbour. This concerns practising discrimination in thought and in speech. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house. This is concerned with establishing contentment through abstaining from envy. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife, nor your neighbour's goods. This is concerned with practising non-attachment. Order members also undertake to acquire an elementary knowledge of the liberal arts and sciences, which formed the basis of classical education in earlier times, and still have a relevance today. The arts consist of grammar, logic and rhetoric, which were traditionally known as the trivium. The sciences, known as the quadrivium, consisted of arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy and form the core material of graduate education. The deeper significance of these subjects will become apparent to those who study them. For example, grammar requires us to understand the principles of language. The question is, what language? The language we refer to is not simply our common language, but the language of symbolism relevant to the tradition. Logic requires that we study the application of reason, and that study applies not only to life in the mundane world, but also to the use of symbolism. Rhetoric means firstly the art of presenting a coherent argument in an attractive and convincing manner, but secondly, and more importantly, it means clearly articulating thought processes 
where inspiration is concerned. Within the quadrivium we find arithmetic, which commonly signifies the science of numbers, but it also includes gematria, notarikon and tamuria. In gematria we find a method of scriptural exegesis through which the numerical value of words and phrases are related to other words and phrases of the same value. These methods have been used extensively by Kabbalists from the earliest times. Notarikon is a system of shorthand in which the letters of a word are seen as an abbreviation of a whole sentence, and Tamura is a method of substituting letters according to specific rules. There are indeed other systems and methods, but I've described enough to make the point concerning arithmetic. Geometry is concerned with the study of spatial relations between forms in mathematical terms. It is also concerned with developing the image-making faculty. Astrology and astronomy is concerned with the study of the cosmos and their influence on human existence and involves the study of mythology as it applies to the tradition, whereas music is the study of proportion and harmony in sound, which includes singing and chanting and the effects of vibration. It goes without saying that a basic knowledge of Christian study is obligatory for all members of the order. However, those destined for holy orders must establish a deeper understanding of these subjects, which include the Bible, liturgy, the sacraments, apostolic church history, free church denominations and sacred art. Order members are also expected to study, in due course, comparative religion, including some of the scriptures and spiritual disciplines involved. The following are essential disciplines that order members must learn. First, there is the study of the tradition, particularly in its Kabbalistic expression without which there can be no real understanding of the mystical philosophy taught by the ODP. Secondly, meditation. Each member is expected to become proficient in meditation and to make a comparative study of the methods and techniques used by other cultures. Third, daily offices. The daily offices form a framework of devotion and regular spiritual exercises necessary for spiritual development. Fourthly, the regular attendance of group devotions are fundamental to the spiritual life of the order and is therefore obligatory. Fifthly, ritual. The term is used here to mean the formal dramatization of prayer by which the spiritual dynamics of the soul are exercised and developed. Sixth, divination. The purpose of divination is to develop the intuitive faculty. Thus different methods are employed to develop different aspects of the mind. Seventh, healing. Each member should become familiar with healing methods that may be applied in the course of their ministry. And lastly, philosophy. The purpose of philosophy is to develop the reasoning faculty and to become familiar with the legacy of ideas and concepts our ancestors bequeathed to humanity. Here we must draw to a close Part 5 of the Brief History of the Order of Dionysus and Paul. Thank you.